Well, if you would, let's turn to the 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm. And I will read verses 1 through 21. So Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. To the chief musician upon Ajalith Shehar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me, and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gape upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. and Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. Now as one can discern from reading of these verses, verses 1 through 21, that this psalm regards someone who is experiencing terrible afflictions from the hands of God and from the hands of men. The question is who? Of whom does this psalm speak? Is it David alone, as our title indicates, that he is the author or the composer of this psalm? That is Psalm 22. Is King David speaking for any or all of God's people who suffer affliction? If he is speaking for himself and or for others, what are the circumstances surrounding it? Is it for his own sins or for the sins of others? Or for the fact that we live in a fallen world where the elect of God faces the consequences of a world that has been cursed by sin? The answer to such questions actually lies in the Word of God. 
if the scriptures are to be our guide, and we trust that they are, then we must see then this of David speaking of another. Now, who might that be? The scripture, once again, supply us the answer. The New Testament affirms this psalm to be speaking of Jesus Christ. It is Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who is the subject of our psalm. Verse 1, verses 7 through 8, verse 16, verse 18, and verse 22, for instance, are repeated or referenced by New Testament writers who show that our Lord Jesus is in view in this psalm. Now, how much of David or others are seen here may be debated, and of course it is. But we can say with bold confidence that David is prophesying here of our Lord Jesus Christ. As in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where he writes of one who is suffering, and in the New Testament is asked to fill it by the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, where we read, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. We may do the same thing in this place, because it is of Christ which the prophet David speaks here. Now, as it does speak of Jesus Christ, we can further say that it speaks of him in those first 21 verses as he was suffering for the sins of his people. It's very true as one who was holy, undefiled, and sinless in his own person. He was, though, living in a world that had been corrupted by sin. Sin and its consequences in this world was seen and is seen at every turn. And as one who was without personal sin, this must have been quite a wonder. He had, of course, the effects of a fallen world upon himself, that is, those things that which, of course, were not sinful in and of themselves. He hungered. He became tired. He became exhausted. He experienced pain, sorrow, sadness, and all other things that come upon the human race because of Adam's transgression. But it is here in these passages that we see him as our surety, the one who stands in our stead, the one who bore our sins upon the tree. And as our sins were laid upon him, as Isaiah speaks, he then was counted and treated as guilty of our sins. As he was and is God manifest in the flesh, both God and man in one person, he became our mediator and thus he suffered the right justice of God upon him. And this is the heart of the passages that I just read a few moments ago, the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. Now, as most of you know who are listening, we have been preaching through this psalm in the first hour of our worship on the Lord's Day. We've given sermons on verses 1 through 16 thus far, and this will make it sermon number 20. And so we will take up verse 17 then for today. So turning back then to the psalm, Psalm 22, verse 17, we read this. Here our Lord says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. <clears throat> and examining this passage, let's consider several points that can be seen. The first is 
the immediate circumstances of this verse. What is going on as he utters these words? As I just related, it is when our Lord is upon the cross. At this point, he has been crucified, he's been nailed to the cross, and he's suffering the terrible effects of it. Just how long he's been hanging on the cross, it's not very clear, but it has been several hours of great and awful sufferings and agonies. Thus, the effects of the crucifixion have taken their toll upon him physically. He speaks of some of this beginning in verse 14 through verse 16 that we read a while ago. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. So we see here that something then of the sufferings physically of our Lord. Previously, though, he's spoken of the crowd that has gathered around at the scene of the crucifixion. And we see that many of the crowd have been cruelly mocking him as he was suffering. They added to his torments by saying terrible and blasphemous words against him. While these words of his enemies are before us, you'll notice, though, they are actually spoken by the mouth of our Lord. That is, he's saying this, these things, because that's what they're saying of him. And it is to his Father, that is his God, that he repeats these things to him. He's telling his Father what his enemies are saying of him. And the reason for this is that these things, both what they are saying and what he's suffering, are arguments to his Father that he would hear him and help him. Notice in verse 11, it says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And he begins then to describe something of his uh, crucifixion itself and those who are about him. And in these things, he begins, of course, in verse 1, where he calls upon God, lamenting that he's been forsaken of him and finding no help. He says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. So at the point of, as we come to verse 17 then, he's relating here the awful effects of the crucifixion and what they are doing to him physically. What those effects are having upon his body. Now, just as a side note here, this is one of the several important reasons that our Lord, as he is truly God, became flesh. That was in order to suffer. His body was made like ours. It was subject to the physical abuse and pain that he was to undergo, just as you and I were to suffer if we had been crucified. He, too, experienced all of that. Paul reminds us, of the fact of his body in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 where he says wherefore when he cometh into the world he saith sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body thou hast prepared me and again in Hebrews chapter 2 where Paul is speaking there of something of the union that Christ has with his people 
He says in chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. So we see here that the Lord Jesus, as all men who are descended from Adam, he says our children are partakers of flesh and blood. And so Christ himself took that very same nature upon himself, that he too was flesh and blood. Now this was necessary in the plan and purpose of God as Jesus Christ then was to suffer in the way and the manner that he was to do so. As I said, it was the purpose of God that all of this, of course, transpired. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, we read, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And that's in reference there to God. For to you, for to do whatsoever thy hand, that is God's hand, and thy counsel, God's counsel, determined before to be done in regards to Jesus Christ. And here, of course, we see the wisdom of God being displayed in all of this. Now, secondly, let us see the words of our passage in light of what we've been saying. First, these again are the words of our Lord. It is he who says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Now, these are not the words of an onlooker who's witnessing the crucifixion and the soon death, of Jesus Christ. While his enemies certainly are looking and they are staring, yet these are not their words, but they're his. He is speaking in this passage as he is hanging upon the cross, suffering the terrible agonies and pains, as I previously mentioned. Secondly, from his words, this shows us that he is aware of what is going on. In fact, all the words found in this psalm, as they are his, they show us that he is fully aware of the events that are happening about him and what the immediate effects of being nailed to the cross and all of that suffering are bringing upon his body. He's fully conscious of what's going on. He knows what's happening. As we noticed before in verses 1 through 2, where it reads, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, in the night season, and am not silent. We see here that he recognizes the fact that he's been praying, that he is praying. He's praying here with sound reason. He also recognizes the fact that all is going on. God is holy and just in dealings, his dealings towards him. Verse 3. He says, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. He's justifying God here in these these passages, saying that God is holy. He is able to recall accurately the things which his enemies are saying of him in verses 7 and 8, for instance. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You see, he knows that. He knows he hears these things. He's able to remember God's former mercies upon him, even when he was a child. Verses 9 and 10. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. 
And now as we are at this point in the psalm, he's able to know and to recognize the effects that are taking place upon him. Verses 14 again and through 17, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, and they look and stare upon me. We can see and learn that our Lord Jesus was very aware of his surroundings. He was aware of his enemies, and he was aware of his sufferings. Now let us examine the two phrases as they're given there in our text. For the first, we read in verse 17, I may tell all my bones. I may tell all my bones. What is he saying or what is revealing here in these words? First, he is speaking of the reality that he can count his bones. The word tell, of course, can have several meanings. For instance, it can be used in this sense. I'm going to tell you a story. That is, I'm informing you or informing someone of something. And this could be true here as well. He's telling, in that sense, these things to his father. It can be used to mean to give an account of something, similar to the first instance I gave. And it can be used to give the idea of counting or adding up. And this is the sense which it's used here. He could number the number of his bones. He could tell them, that is, he could add them up. He could know how many bones were sticking out, as we may say. Now, this reveals some telling things. No pun intended there. First of all, something of his humiliation, that he was humbled here by his own creatures, those whom he had created, as Jesus is the creator of all things. We notice our Lord was stripped down, if we're familiar with the gospel accounts. Some, if not most, of his clothing had been removed from him. In fact, we will see in the next verse that his clothes were taken from him and they were used to, for the soldiers to part out. He says, they part my garments among them, in verse 18, and cast lots upon my vesture. So here is the eternal Son of God, creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, who gives all men life and breath. They have stripped him. He's partially naked before his enemies to behold him. Now, of course, we know now it is natural, as we would say, to have clothing upon us. After Adam fell, he knew he was naked and sought to cover his nakedness by fig leaves. And so now our Lord is naked before the world. He's naked here before his enemies. And so this is a public display of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Here they are degrading the Son of God. Secondly, it reveals the leanness of his body, the leanness of his body. The great agonies of his cross brought much physical deformities to his body. His dehydrated body shone forth the bones that he had. 
Remember one of the sayings he uttered on the cross that's recorded both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament was, I thirst. He was so thirsty because of the effects of the crucifixion upon him, his body being racked and torn. A parallel passage of Job in regards to some of his suffering says this in Job 33 and verse 21. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not stick out. So here in Job and his trouble and his agonies and all that he was going through shows us here that that's one of the effects of it. Again, Job tells us in Job 19, verse 20, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Another thing, and this is what one commentator said, he said the posture of the body on the cross would so distend the flesh and skin as to make the bones visible so that they might be numbered. In other words, as he's hanging there with all the pressure of his own body and gravity pulling him down and being in all the state that he's in, this, of course, would reveal his bones under his flesh. Now, figuratively speaking, it can refer to the mental exhaustion brought on by the great pains he was suffering. Now, by saying this, I'm not saying that he was figuratively suffering here. He really didn't suffer. No, the Bible makes it very plain that he really was suffering the effects of the cross. But also speaking figuratively here, or in a metaphor, we know that this is an example of the great pains he was suffering. In Psalm 102, verse 5, it says, By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. So when our Lord here says, in verse 17, I may tell all my bones, he's speaking literally here and figuratively that his bones were showing through, thus describing something of the awful agonies and the terrible pains that his body was being racked with. Now, let us notice the second and the final clause of our text. It states, he says, I may tell all my bones, and then they look and stare upon me. They look and stare upon me. Now, it's not clear here that if it means they were just staring upon him and looking on him with a great wonder to, as a great wonder to behold. Remember, he's made some very bold statements, our Lord, in his earthly ministry. They were bold statements, but they were also very true statements that he was the Son of God. He claimed that. They understood that he knew himself to be God. Of course, they didn't believe him, but they knew that he had confessed he was the Son of God. He, he had confessed that he was God himself. When a man was told by our Lord Jesus that his sins were forgiven, they accused him of making himself God. In other words, only God can forgive sins. And so we read in Matthew 9, verses 2 and 3, And behold, they brought him a man sick of the palsy, lying in a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. 
thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And another time, in John chapter 10, verse 33, where Jesus is once again talking about his sheep and how that he cares for them, and the goats don't hear the Son of God, but the sheep do, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou, because that thou, being a man, maketh thyself God. So here they're accusing him of making him to be God. And of course, they know this. They hear him saying these things. And then you remember at his trial there in Mark's gospel, they finally declare, you've heard the blasphemy. What think ye? All they are condemn, and all they condemn him to be guilty of death. Now, why did they condemn him to be guilty of death? Because... He blasphemed, at least in their idea, he blasphemed by claiming to be the Son of God. And yet, with all that in mind then, here is the one that had claimed to be the Son of God, one that they heard him claim to be the Son of God. Now he is hanging upon the cross before them. And so you can imagine they're just standing there looking and and gazing there at this one who claimed to be God, and yet he is in such a pitiful shape. It could mean also that they were looking upon him because here was the one who had worked so many miracles. You remember, he had healed the sick. He had cast out devils. He had raised the dead. He had calmed the seas. So he did all these great and mighty things, yet now he's dying before them. And they stare at him, again, in wonder and amazement. How can one who could do all these things and yet now be hanging on the cross? It could be because he demonstrated great trust in his God. And now it seems to them God has abandoned him. Back in this passage in verse 8, they say there, as our Lord repeats their words, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. So, once again, this would give them reason to stare. Or, the reason for these words is that they were just content to stare upon him, simply to wait and to watch him die. He was only to them, you remember, a just criminal sentenced to die. And they are there to see it through and to watch it carried out. But since the word, now all of that's true, but since the words are in the context of his bones being exposed, it probably is that they too could see that he was wasted away and his bones were on display to the crowd and that they could see. And so they stared at him and stared at his bones. Perhaps here too, even in wonder and amazement. Because we do read this in Isaiah 52 and verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You remember, before he was crucified, he had been mistreated and beaten and whipped by the Pharisees and the council there, and also by Herod's men and Pilate's men. And so he had received much sufferings before he actually was nailed to the cross. 
And then he is now nailed to the cross. So you can imagine all the, the condition he might have been in. And as Isaiah writes here, as many were astonished at him, the, his visage was more, so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So here was someone, as we would say, out of character for the problems and the, the, the troubles he had went through in his crucifixion. So such then was his condition that they could only look and gape upon him then. Two, the Lord Jesus was nothing more to his enemies than a spectacle to them. One who was worthy only to be stared upon, only to be mocked and blasphemed. Luke records this in his gospel where he says, And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if, it be Christ, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. So here they're mocking him. But you notice the first part of that passage is, And the people stood beholding. They're watching him. He was, after all, as the prophet Isaiah prophesies of him, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now here we can see our Lord was so willing to give himself over to their hatred, and they, of course, were so willing to give their hatred to him. And such are all those who are still dead in their sins. Now, from this passage, what can we learn from this? What would be something of the applications to the things of which we've just discussed regarding these words that are spoken by our Lord? First, and this is interesting, the last clause states that they look and stare upon him. They look and they stare. They're, they're gazing at him. They're looking at him. But... They're damned. They look and are not saved. But they who do so by faith, that is, they look by faith to Christ, that's nothing more than the results of being born again. You remember the Lord said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now Christ's words in this passage are referring back to that incident when the children of Israel murmured before the Lord and God sent serpents among them to bite and to destroy them. And we read this in Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he Take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it on a pole, upon a pole. And it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And that's what our Lord is referring to there in John 3 when he said, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So in other words, those at the cross there some 2,000 years ago, they looked and they stared, but they were lost. But those who look and behold Christ with faith have eternal life. So that's quite interesting that the lost clause there says that they look and they stared upon him, but they did not look by faith. They didn't look by faith alone, trusting and believing that he was the very one whom he said he was. And all who do look to him, who believe upon him, <clears throat> excuse me, as John records there of the words of our Lord, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Secondly, that we can learn from this is that man's sinful nature has not changed. What occurred at the cross 2,000 years ago would happen again if all of this was to take place once more. It won't, but I'm saying here that if it were, then they would do the same thing because man's nature doesn't change. Man's nature does not change by time. It doesn't change by distance. It doesn't change by education nor anything else but the sovereign and particular grace of God. We're not any more or less wicked by nature as we were 2,000, 3,000 years ago. We're the same because flesh is still flesh. Our nature does not change. It is only by the mighty power of God that we are changed into real or we're changed into Christians. Bible, remember, writes to the Ephesians, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And then he begins to describe there what it means to be dead in trespasses and in sins. It's not a life of inactivity. It's a life where men are very active, but they're very active in sin. And this is the case of all men who were born. doesn't matter who they are. He says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We're in time past. Ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. He's stating here, even the elect, those who are saved, he says that they too were once dead in sins. They too once walked like the world in sin and being under sin's dominion. Paul can say of them again in Ephesians 4. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, <clears throat> having the understanding darkened, 
being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. And those passages in the book of Romans where Paul is describing something of the lost estate of all men, whether Jew or Gentile, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he gives that description there in chapter 3 that there, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seeketh after God. That's their state by nature. That's all of us by nature. We're born into this world. We come into this world not with a slate that's neither clean nor dirty it's, or a clean or fine. It's actually very dirty. Paul, again, describing something of the carnal mind. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's all men by nature, all men who were born, the sons of Adam. And so man's nature hasn't changed. As I said, what occurred there some 2,000 years ago would have happened again. If you and I had been standing there apart from the grace of God, we too would have been crying out, crucify him. The third thing I would have us to learn from this is that, Christian, it is by considering such things as this we faint not. By thinking on these things and knowing these things, These are the truths that cause us to persevere and continue under trials and sorrows and heartaches and all the things that may happen in this fallen world. As we battle against sin, as we strive to walk after godliness and holiness. Paul writes in Hebrews 12 and verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So the idea here is, as Jesus Christ endured all of this for his people, that he endured the contradictions and the blasphemous things that they said against him, he says we're to consider these things, or we'll be wearied and faint in our minds. Thus then, to keep from doing that, to keep from giving up and giving in, then we are to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And then the fourth thing I would like to leave us with is the fact that those things that we read of today, those first 21 verses, as well as what we'll be reading in the weeks to come as we continue our exposition through Psalm 22, is that these things were done for the Christian. These were done for us who are believers in Christ Jesus or whoever will be believers in Christ. All those who will be born again, who will, be, who will pass from death unto life. These things he went through for us. All the agonies, all of the sorrows, all of the pains, all of his things that he, <clears throat> that he endured, that contradiction of sinners, he did for the believer. 
Now think of that. He did so for us. Now, he's not hanging there because he's guilty personally of any sin. We know that our Lord Jesus was without sin. And all that he did, he went about doing good. He never did any sin whatsoever. But in this great covenant that God made with his son in order to save his people from their sins, our Lord agreed to come and to bear the sins of many. That our sins, as Isaiah tells us, were laid upon him. And thus he became guilty, not that he really was a sinner, but that he became guilty. He answers now, he's our surety, as I pointed out earlier, for our sins. He stands in our place. He's our substitute. And rather than us suffering the wrath of God and the torments of man, he did so for his people. He stands as their surety, the one who bore their iniquities, the one who took our sins upon him and suffered in our stead. And that was something that was necessary if any man was to be saved, that he was that Christ must stand in and did stand in his place. The scripture tells us, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here is our Lord taking then our sins. Not that they were really his. The Bible tells us, for instance, in Second Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty one, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He was innocent, but he was made sin for us. He says For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Not for his own sin, but for those sins that were laid to his account. The Bible tells us again in Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So we read again how the Lord took our sins, and because he did take our sins, He was imputed, or as we would say, accounted then as a sinner. And thus God punished him for the sins of his people. Because he had none. He was innocent. But our sins were laid to him. So Christian, as we think about this, this is something that he did for his people. That he went to the cross and suffered for them. How should that make us live? It should make us live before him as we are. We ought to be obedient to the word of God. Do what he tells us. Abstain from doing those things we shouldn't do. Because these are the reasons why God put his son upon the cross. Well, I trust that what we've said this morning will be helpful. And it gives us an idea then of Psalm 22, verse 17, 
something of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. May God bless that to us today. Amen.